1: Chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. You may locate this text in your pew Bible at page 941. First, let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One one owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with Him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
0: Good morning. I'm so glad to be here with you all this morning. Laura down here asked me if I woke up and drove to the wrong campus, and that's pretty much what happened, so I hope that's okay. Thank you for having me. I'd like to tell you a story about a woman named Louisa Woosley. Louisa was born in March of 1862 in the hill country of Kentucky. She was brought up in a Baptist family and as early as the age of 12 began to experience God calling her into formal ministry. This caused her a deep anxiety, both because of what she believed about a woman's place in the church and the household, but also because she didn't know of any women who had ever been preachers before. When she married her husband, a farmer, she used to pray fervently that he might catch the gift of preaching so that she could serve at his side. He remained a farmer Instead, Louisa continued to experience the call to preach and to serve to the point where she made herself sick over it. So she decided that she was going to read the Bible from cover to cover, making note of every place that a woman was mentioned Upon finishing her reading, she determined that God had not overlooked women in the place and order of ministry, and so when the opportunity presented itself for her to fill the pulpit of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, she did just that. Two years later, she was ordained by the Nolan Presbytery of the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination, which caused all kinds of problems in Kentucky and up and down the East Coast. She served the rest of her life as a faithful minister, leading revival movements across the country. At the time of her death in 1952, our denomination was still four years away from officially ordaining women as ministers of the word and sacrament. Louisa was described as small in stature and very modest. This unassuming woman is not who we might expect to find leading the charge for the ordination of women, but she is exactly who God had in mind, and praise be to God for that. In our scripture lesson this morning, we encounter another woman we might not expect to find at the feet of Jesus One of the things I love about Luke's gospel is that Jesus goes to a lot of dinner parties. (laughs) I love a good dinner party, and I like to imagine Jesus there with his friends, sharing a meal, sharing a story, breaking bread together. But a suspicious number of the dinner parties that Jesus goes to turn out to be really awkward. And this one is no exception. Consider the scene Fred just read for us. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. The Pharisee, the religious leader, was a man named Simon. And we might read in between the lines that Simon had invited Jesus over to show off this interesting man to his friends. Before they'd been there very long, a woman comes in. A woman that everyone there at the table knows as that woman. Every community has one of those, that person. You can imagine the eyes cutting across the table by those in the know. She doesn't belong. She shouldn't be here. What is he going to do about it? And when she comes in and she sits at Jesus' feet and she begins to weep, well, that is the moment when some of my relatives in South Carolina would have gotten up to fix themselves another drink. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I think there was also some excitement in the air. Finally, that woman is going to get what's coming to her. They wait with bated breath the air buzzing in anticipation, and then audible gasps when she breaks an alabaster jar of expensive oil and pours it right over Jesus' head right there at the table. It's clearly not how Simon expected this dinner party to go. He'd invited over this very interesting man to entertain all of his friends, and that woman was stealing his spotlight. Surely, he thinks to himself, this man can't be a prophet. If he was, he wouldn't be associating with someone like that. To signal to us that Jesus is a prophet, he reads Simon's mind And so Jesus quizzes him with a little parable about people indebted to a moneylender who have their debts wiped clean. Simon, a little slow to the pickup, eventually gets it. Do we think that he's more angry or embarrassed as Jesus goes on to point out that Simon had committed the faux pas of not offering Jesus any water upon his arrival, that Simon had not offered a customary kiss in greeting, and that Simon had not anointed him as an honored guest, but that woman had. Hmm. Today is the third in a series that we are calling, Why Church?, where we are exploring the main reasons that younger people aren't coming to church anymore. It's a fair question. Why church? When so many religious people act like Simon the Pharisee, and so many non-religious people are like that woman— searching for meaning and connection and truth in a world that heaps upon them judgment and shame. One of the reasons, the one we'll talk about today, is that the church is anti-women. And you know what? It certainly has been, and in some ways it continues to be. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, we did know that today was Father's Day when we were doing some worship planning. It wasn't an intentional slight against the dads among us, but the timing does seem apt after the news this week from the Southern Baptist Convention… If you don't know, 13,000 Southern Baptists gathered in New Orleans for what we might think of as their version of the General Assembly, and 88% of the attendees voted to uphold a decision to kick out Rick Warren's Saddleback Church over their decision to hire a female pastor, 88%. It was not an easy thing to watch unfold as a woman ordained into a denomination that affirms women's leadership. It is infinitely worse for women who feel God's call on their lives but also find themselves called to a Southern Baptist congregation. But we are not going to pick on the Southern Baptists, not today anyway. No, the log in our own eye is big enough. I count it a true privilege to be here among you to serve a vibrant congregation alongside such an accomplished and talented staff at a church that has, at least currently, more women pastors on its staff than it does men. We have come a long way as a denomination, and I am genuinely so hopeful about all that lies ahead but we still have a ways to go. There are plenty of churches in our own denomination that don't fully affirm the gifts of women, that pay lip service to equality, but don't have meaningful practices or policies that support the full inclusion of women into the life and leadership of our churches. Of the churches that I've served, including the church I grew up in and where I served as an intern in seminary, only one of them has ever had a woman as their senior pastor or head of staff, and she co-pastors that church with her husband. We might ask ourselves, what's taken us so long? There's no good reason, as far as I can tell, in Scripture or otherwise, that women should have been excluded for as long as we were. The early church itself was a model for an equal society. Jesus counted women among His disciples, a move that was revolutionary at the time. There is a mountain of evidence that Mary Magdalene was a pillar of the early church, equal in status to that of Peter, that Mary, mother of Jesus, went on to become a bishop, that Lydia is the unknown author of the book of Hebrews. It's clear to me that the church itself has always been pro-women. So the better question might be not what's taken us so long, but instead, What happened? I would argue that the issue arises not with the church itself, which was formed as a radically inclusive community where all were welcome, but with Christendom, with the marriage of Christianity and the Roman Empire and the ways that Christianity still marries itself to our culture today. The Roman Empire was not pro-women, nor was it pro any kind of equality, because it could only successfully exist if some were in and some were out, if some were in charge and others were subservient. This has borne itself out in some really insidious ways across the millennia, creating a culture in which better than became the foundational and guiding principle. Men were better than women. White was better than black. Straight was better than gay. You get the idea. Some of us have still internalized these messages even when they're about us. Even I thought to myself, you know, I really appreciate the invitation from Roger to come and preach today, but maybe he should take this one, you know, to give it a little more authority. This brings us to the point in the sermon where I have to bring up a topic that might get some mixed reviews, and that is feminism. I know church people get a little squirrely about it, and some of you might even be thinking feminism, and on Father's Day, are you kidding me? I know, I know, but stay with me. I'm not talking about that man-hating, hyperbolic depiction of feminism we often see portrayed in films and on television. I'm talking about the writings of Elizabeth Johnson and Mary Daly, of Dolores Williams and Kwok Poulon, feminist theologians of many cultures and backgrounds who have been leading the way for decades for women to have a place in the seminary classroom and in academia and in the pulpit and everywhere in between. The work of feminist theologians invites us to come back to scripture to think a little differently about classic doctrine because while the bible is most certainly the inspired word of god it was clearly written by men women in scripture are portrayed as two-dimensional characters defined by their ability or their inability to have children they fight and they bicker they're petty and they're mean Women speak surprisingly little throughout the whole course of Scripture, even in books of the Bible that are named for them. Let's look at Ruth. Poor Ruth speaks like four lines through the whole thing. It's really Naomi's story, and it might as well be called a mother-in-law's manifesto, how to get your daughter-in-law to get in line. It's a story written by men instructing the Israelite women to assimilate their non-Israelite additions to their families through the uh, necessity of intermarriage with outsiders. Feminist theologians invite us to look at old stories with fresh eyes and wonder about those for whom the story remains untold or only partly told. Surely Eve had a little more to say in the garden. I'm certain that she grieved when Cain killed Abel. After all, she lost two sons that day. Feminist theologians look to Shipra and Pua, those brave and clever midwives who hid Moses in a basket among the reeds, sparing his life. They invite us to wonder about Mary, mother of Jesus, and what she has to teach us, all of us about responding faithfully to God even when we aren't sure that we have what it takes. Biblical women aren't the only women whose stories have been half told. Consider pioneer of nursing Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp. Did you know that at her hospital, she was actually known as the lady with the hammer because she once took to a supply closet that was locked with a hammer, because a general was standing in her way and wouldn't let her in. But newspaper editors in the United States thought that that description might offend the sensibilities of its readers, and so they changed it to something they deemed more suitable for a woman. We have only just begun to arrive at a point where untold stories are coming to light, when women's stories aren't being dulled or diluted or rewritten in case they offend the delicate sensibilities of those who've never had the privilege of knowing a woman willing to take a hammer to a door to help her patients, no matter who's standing in her way. Indeed, friends, while Christian culture, while Christendom has been anti-women, women women have always been called to serve the church. We need look no further than the Presbyterian women. Long before women could be ordained in our denomination, they were raised up as leaders, proclaiming and studying the word in circles, running mission and service projects, and caring for one another in times of need. Feminist theologians invite us to consider a world that looks different from the one we live in now. The goal is not to reach equality as partners with men in a society that continues to be unjust. The goal is to transform society entirely into one that centers and values all voices, in which all are called, all are loved, all are cared for. It's a world that acknowledges that no one person or group owns the copyright to God's revelation. It's a vision for a community that knows that the more that we know about one another, the more we know about God. Scripture tells us, that God is like a mother who would not forsake her nursing child, that Jesus is like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings. And if God cares for us in this way, how much more so might we be called as the church to show God's tender love for the world, refusing to forsake those who've lost their way, gathering together the neediest and the loneliest, the wayward and the grieving, under the protection of God's nurturing love. Women have always been called into a world filled with those like Simon the Pharisee, who would prefer a hierarchy that pits people against one another, that favors some and excludes others, that benefits the powerful and creates even more hardship for those already struggling to survive. Women have followed the lead of so many nameless who've gone before, known only by the sons they bore or the sins they committed including that woman, this woman, who anointed Jesus at Bethany, lavishing on him the kind of love and gratitude and mercy and compassion that Jesus gives his life for, the kind of love and gratitude and mercy and compassion that Jesus raises us to new life for. Christian women have led the way in declaring that another world is possible, one in which there are no haves and have-nots, one in which the lowly are lifted up and the mighty are humbled, a world where all have enough and where all are enough. This is the life that God calls us to, and it is possible because the God who defeated death is able to do abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. And if that isn't the case, then what are we all even doing here? So may we all, not just the women among us, may we all Continue to follow in the footsteps of Sarah and Hagar, of Ruth and Naomi, of Hildegard and Joan of Arc, of Mary and Lydia, of Louisa Woosley, and of Sally Wright, and Melanie Hardison, and Dion Boyce, and Alice Whitson and Sarah R. Speed, and Jesse Light Wells, and Caroline Batson, and Essie Koenig Rinke. may we all continue to follow in their footsteps into the goodness of God's grace and mercy lavished on us for the sake of the world. May we heap upon one another not judgment and shame, but love and compassion. May we weep with gratitude for God's presence borne out through one another in our midst, and may our tears wash the feet of those who don't yet know that they're welcome here because the church has not always been a safe or easy place to be. May we go boldly into the future toward which God is calling us, declaring that our strength lies in our tenderness our might in our vulnerability, our power in our ability to confess and forgive. Thanks be to God for all of the faithful women who have led us here, and may they continue to do so for the life of the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.